Thank you, Carries, and good morning, everyone. It is, um, it is my pleasure to be able to share God's Word with you. Give me a minute. Let me sign in. The funny thing is, um, though my device doesn't recognize me, I think what is more important is that we recognize that God is in our midst. Right. And I'm going to confess that today's message might offend some people. Uh, why? I'll tell you. You will discover. Well, if, we, if you were to bump into me after service, outside of church, if you were to bump into me outside of church, it is highly likely that you will see me wearing a pair of t-shirt, bermudas, and slippers. Uh, some people are nodding their heads, right? When, when, when I was a uni- university student, I used to attend church services like this as well. In my t-shirt, my bums, and my slippers. And it seemed okay until a leader came to me and said that, Actually, this is not okay. But do we have an official dress code huh, in church? Pastor Ray, any sign for official dress code? No, right? We don't have an official dress code. A friend of mine who attends another church, she tells me that the adults and the youth attend church services with at least a polo t-shirt and jeans. Right? The youth will even pack an extra set of clothes for youth camp. Worship. Wow. I was really impressed. And then he explains it's because worship is about honoring God. I was really impressed. If the focus of worship is about God, how should we honor God in worship? As we enter into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul will address key concerns in their worship. They may guide us to honor God as well. There are two HC concerns that Paul will focus on in, in this chapter. The two HCs are, namely, head coverings and holy communion. That's the two HC concerns, right? And so as we take a closer look at this chapter, it appears that Paul is responding to something that the Corinthians have written for his advice. And since we will only be you know, reading Paul's response to the conversation in 1 Corinthians 11, we, we are forced to do a little bit of guesswork to, to figure out what the, the Corinthians were asking. And so allow me to use this letter, which, uh, this letter to Paul from the Corinthian church, which Richard Hayes wrote with a bit of imagination. And this is what uh, he crafted. He imagined this letter to Paul from the Corinth. He says this, Dear Paul, we remember you fondly and wish that we could see you again. Some of us are trying hard to maintain the traditions you taught us, such as the tradition we learned at our baptism, that in Christ there is no longer any distinction between male and female. You'll be glad to know that when we come together for worship, the women in our community continue to play a role equal to the men, praying and prophesying freely in the assembly under the inspiration of the Spirit, just as they did when you were here with us. But a dispute has now arisen on one point. Some of the women acting in the freedom and power of the Spirit have begun to remove their head coverings and lose their hair. I don't think they mean that they drop their hair, right? But loosen their hair when when they prophesy as a sign of their freedom in Christ. Some of the more timid and conservative members of the community have objected to this, thinking it unseemly and disgraceful for women to let their hair down in public. Most of us believe, however, that you would surely approve 
of this practice, for it is an outward and visible sign of the truth of the tradition we received from you. We would be grateful if you could comment directly on this matter in order to dispel any doubt about this point. We remain your devoted followers, the church in Corinth. Sounds okay, right? Now, now imagine Paul's response as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 5 for you. This is from Paul. Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand the hate of every man is Christ. The hate of a wife is her husband and the hate of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. First Corinthians eleven two to five. So please keep your Bibles open as we will return to this to read the rest of the text. Our pastor, our pastor in charge, Pastor Ray, has an interesting sense of humor. Today's sermon is about whether men and women should or should not cover their head. But he has chosen a bota, male pastor, to talk about it. So that's why I said I may get a few feedback later. The first issue that Paul touches on is unholy worship attire, specifically head coverings. Paul's reply came as a surprise to the Corinthians, probably. He endorsed the women's freedom to pray and prophesy in public. But rather than endorsing the women's freedom to prophesy with unbounded hair, Paul instructs them to retain their head coverings. So what's wrong? What's wrong? But it seems that some Corinthians had enthusiastically embraced the early church teaching that in Christ there is no male or female. And now they were seeking to apply this belief to action. Isn't that good? Right? And so, but by removing, by removing their head coverings and letting their hair down in worship, the, the Corinthian women were discarding a traditional marker of gender distinction. To throw off this covering was to enter into the realm of freedom and autonomy that was traditionally given only to men. Interestingly, the female prophets in Greco-Roman pagan worship also prophesied with uncovered and disheveled heads. But here's the issue. But when a, a female, uh, when a married woman uncovers her head, she is also implying that she no longer recognizes her marital status with her husband. It means that she is now single again. And so for the woman to, for, for the woman, the, the wife specifically, to uncover her head in public is an act of disgrace to her husband and possibly even herself. And just as the covering and uncovering of head can be a source of shame for the person individually, it affects the church as a whole and, and the worship of God. This unholy worship attire distracts fellow Christians. It draws their attention away from God in public worship. And this is why God wants the church to restore worship with God as the central focus of thought and attention. 
And this is why the covering or uncovering of the head is not merely a sign of individual freedom. It signifies as well either respect or disrespect for our headship. And so, who is this head that is being dishonoured? What does the head mean? The word head has multiple meanings. Although some of us may simply translate headship to leadership, the word leadership poorly describes what headship truly means. The word headship has at least three meanings. The first meaning, the first meaning for headship is that headship refers to source. For example, the head of the river is where all of life and water comes from. The emphasis is on the ontological priority of man. In Genesis, Adam was created first and Eve was made out of his ribs. Right? And it's not the other way around. This is also supported by 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, which referred to Eve's creation from Adam's rib. But there is little evidence in the ancient text to support this interpretation. It also creates a wrong impression that, that women are an inferior image of God. What do you think? Are women an inferior image of God? Or Pastor Clem is the only one who loudly says that. I'm so proud of you, Pastor Clem. <laughs> women are not an inferior image of God. We must notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that men bear the image of God and women do not. Right? He doesn't say that, we, that, that, that men are superior and women are inferior. Paul doesn't say that. Both men and women bear God's image and they reflect God's glory on earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 11 to 12, Paul also points out that men also come from women. Allow me to read it for you. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of men, nor man of, of women. For as women was made from men, so man is now born of women, and all things are from God. And so you can see here from, from creation and procreation, there is an interdependence between men and women. So both men and women by creation are the source of each other's existence. And so the, the idea of independence that Paul makes here now only finds the idea of headship as source. The second meaning for headship is that headship refers to a, a ruler of a community. For most of us, the head is simply the one in charge. The head of a school, the head of a fire department, or the village head is the boss. That the ruler has institutional authority where command and control is involved. And this is displayed through dominance and subservience. Heads who are rulers, they have the authority to tell other people what to do and they expect obedience from them. However, it is difficult to apply this interpretation to this text because it has very little references to authority. The other problem is that our modern perception of authority is so bound up with the idea of dominance and control that this interpretation suggests a narrower focus that Paul probably has in mind. And so the idea of headship fails to, the, the idea of headship as ruler fails to fit Paul's precise meaning. This is at best a partially correct Definition, partially correct. The third meaning for headship is that it is the public face. It refers to the head that is the body part that represents the whole body. 
the word head is, is used as a metaphor. The, for example, the, for example, I saw my friends here, the heart of Paul's picture is not command and control like in a Western organization. It is honor and shame like an Eastern family. The head is not primarily the one in charge or even the source of everything, even though he, he usually is both, right? The head is the prominent one, the prominent one. The one whose reputation is either honored or shamed by the actions of others. For example, the head of a family is the one who, repre- uh, is the one who represents the, the family. He is the public face, the representative, the point of contact, and he's usually the prominent one. But this head of the family can be a son. He can be, it can be a son who has been chosen by the family as the family spokesperson for his parents and his siblings. He is not necessarily the dominant figure or the source as in the person at the top of the family tree, but he represents the family. He is the public face. The, the public face is linked with responsibility and representation in public. Because, and because uh, this is so because the, the head is usually the the part of the body which is most readily distinguished or recognized. And so if the first translation is about origin, the second is about domination and subordination, this translation is about responsibility. The head, the head as a public face has a responsibility to protect, even if they do not necessarily have the power or authority over someone. The theologian Michelle Michelle Lee Banwell, she also points out that Paul's emphasis is on reversal. It's on reversal, not authority. Think with me. In ancient civilizations, the body was expected to sacrifice for the head. Right? In ancient civilizations, the body was expected to sacrifice for the head. But in God's design, it is reversed. The head sacrifices for the body. You see that? And this is why this form of headship requires a relationship based on love, where our obedience to the head is voluntary, not imposed. This translation is closer to, to the earlier two meanings. And, and so allow me to pause and ask then, is Christ still the head of this church? What do you think? Is Christ still the head of this church? Some are nodding, some are still thinking about this question, Right? So my friends, if Christ is still the head of this church, does the clothing we wear matter? Does the clothing we wear in public matter? Or do I have the freedom to wear whatever I feel like wearing today? The practical point about headship is that if Jesus is the head of this church family, our choice of clothes and our behavior will either bring honor or shame to Him. For example, if I'm invited to to a formal wedding dinner where it is a black tie event, what will you wear? Men will probably wear either a tuxedo and a black suit, or, or a black suit. Ladies will wear a formal evening gown. And so for me to show up wearing a soccer jersey, right, showing all my, my, my love for Liverpool, right, and wearing a sports cap, it will be a poor display of personal confidence. It will be perceived as rude and foolish to, to, to the head of honour. Likewise, our worship ought to draw attention to God. We should not compete for attention from God through our behaviour and our attire. Inappropriate worship attire or behaviour can display our, selfish, our selfishness and lack of respect for God. And so what we wear 
can honour and hurt not only individuals and, and their respective heads, but also our missionary witness to non-believers who might enter this church as well. But it is more than where it is more than whether it is shameful or distracting. What we wear can be a redemptive decision as well. Our freedom to worship should not stumble others. We need to be respectful of our culture and customs. And this was an essential point for the Corinthian church where sexual distinction is needed because Corinth is a sex-obsessed city in Paul's time. And so Paul was careful not to, uh, Paul was careful to respect the cultural markers of his time. His teaching on head covering is intended to observe appropriate cultural norms and distinctions between women and men in corporate worship. And this is why Paul gave this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 24 and verse 32 to 33 before he began giving advice about worship in the subsequent chapters. And let me read this for you. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Verse 32, Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Our lack of social respect can offend and stumble unbelievers. It will hurt our witness of the gospel. So what does this mean for us practically? Can I just wear whatever I feel like to church? Perhaps we should consider if the, the clothes we wear distracts us and draws, a, draws our attention away from God. And so, Pastor Ray, I'm going to ask you this question. Can my, my sister wear only sports bra and yoga shorts yoga pants to church? <laughs> oh, I plan to go running after service. Uh, this is the man asking. I plan to go running after service. Can I just wear my running singlet and my FBT running shorts? I don't intend to give you a list of what to wear and what not to wear. I, I trust we are all adults here and I will leave this to your own prayerful discernment. But I hope that your consideration will go beyond whether my choice of clothes and behaviour is distracting to whether it is redemptive. Is it redemptive? And I, I, want to, I want to caution you with my mistake. Many years ago, I was in another church. I was visiting another church and I happened to ask my wife why she was wearing this particular set of clothes. Uh, to be clear, uh, there's nothing revealing about her attire. But, but ladies' fashion was just more complicated than men's fashion. Don't you think so? With all their variety, like romper, jumpsuit, bustier. Wow. I don't understand all this. There was nothing revealing, I repeat, there was nothing revealing about my wife's attire. But I didn't understand the fashion. And it was an eyesore to me. <laughs> she was so upset. She was so upset. She stayed in the ladies' toilet and cried throughout the whole worship set. I didn't see her until the worship ended, the service ended. I can see... Oh, many of you are shaking your heads. Thankfully, she's still my wife today. So guys, please tread carefully. If the first issue was about unholy worship attire, the other issue that Paul was concerned about is unholy communion. 
our previous pastor in charge, Pastor Stanley, had previously preached two excellent sermons uh, in September 2020 on Holy Communion. I encourage you to visit our online sermon archives to, to watch them. I will not repeat what he taught, but I want to focus on a few points about Holy Communion. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20 to 28. I'll read for everyone. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command, shall I command you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 28 Church gatherings were originally held in private homes. In some places, the church uh, would meet upstairs in the modest homes of fellow Christians. These would be similar to the shop houses that we see in Chinatown and Little India. On the other hand, there are also churches, uh, there are churches where, where wealthy Christians could host large gatherings in a more spacious home, like a villa or a bungalow. Ancient Roman homes were designed to reinforce social status and difference. And so the wealthier, the wealthier the household, more status were recognized in the partitioning of space within the home. And so under such conditions, it was common for a handful of higher class guests to be invited to the dining room where they could, they could recline and enjoy the better quality food and drinks. Such as, you know, uh, such as the first class, the first class passengers on the airplane receiving much better food than others in the economy class, the same airplane. The atrium, on the other hand, was set aside for the remaining lower class guests and could hold 20 to 50 people with standing room. Inferior food and wine would be allocated to them. And this societal problem spilled over into the church during Holy Communion. My friends, Holy Communion is supposed to be a communal meal with everyone gathered around the same table. But it has become an unholy communion where it was treated like a private meal and people have segregated into social groups. The upper social class, Christians discriminated and neglected the needs of others. They reclined in comfort and consumed their own food without due consideration while others in the adjoining atrium had little to eat and drink. And so out of hunger, the, the lower working class reached out to, to consume the communion elements as though it was an ordinary meal. And so my friends, the communion, 
the Holy Communion has been turned upside down. And this is why Paul is so angry. We must choose to honour God by, by practising the art of sharing. It is not about giving equal portions. It is about extending more grace to those who need it more. This might, this might be the only proper meal they, they will get for the whole week. Some of us, on the other hand, you know, we have the means to go for a full course meal after that. Suppose I'm already 50% full. Uh, even before I reach the fellowship space outside this hall. But the gentleman beside me, he may not have eaten all day. His stomach is growling. It is empty. It is at 0%. I can actually let him go and eat first, right? I can let him go ahead of the queue. The art of sharing is about letting my neighbor get enough on his plate to eat. In his book, uh, the mean, in his book, Means of Grace, the author Andrew Thompson, he shared about a small church that he was appointed to pastor. As the, the congregation previously had an unordained pastor, they had not been able to celebrate Holy Communion for many years. And so now with, with this pastor's arrival, the church was delighted to have an ordained elder who can celebrate Holy Communion monthly. And so came that first First Sunday of Holy Communion, this newly appointed pastor led them through the liturgy as he held up the bread and cup so that the congregation could, could see them. He said, this is my body given for you. This is, my blood of, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And so when the invitation to receive the communion elements was given, the pastor's wife, the pastor's wife happened to be beside a family uh, which had a younger, a nine-year-old girl. This young, this young nine-year-old, this young girl, nine-year-old, had not experienced communion for most of her life. And so, as she waited for her turn, uh, the pastor's wife saw the young, the young girl turn to her mom with wide eyes, tuck her mom at her sleeve, and say, "Mom, mommy, is this really blood? Was it really the blood?" and body of Christ. When is Jesus present at communion? There are several views about the presence of Christ at this sacrament. Firstly, there are some who say that Christ is not present at Holy Communion. It is only a remembrance. After all, that's what Paul wrote, right? Secondly, there are some who teach that Christ is physically present. They believe that somehow when a religious leader prays, the bread and cup, transforms into the physical, the physical body and blood of Christ. Of course, there is a subgroup that teaches, no, 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 no. We're not saying that the entire bread and, and the whole cup becomes literally the body and blood of Christ. We are saying that it is still bread and still cup. Right? But there are some elements of the body and blood of Christ in it. Finally, as Methodists, we, we believe that it is the spiritual presence of Christ who is in our midst. But what about the communion elements? What the Bible is saying is that, that these are symbols and representations for us to remember Christ. Suppose I take a picture of my wife here. This is a photo of my wife and I say, this is my wife. You wouldn't think that I married a, a, a photograph, right? You wouldn't think that Mary photographed. You wouldn't understand that when I say, this is my wife, this picture represents my wife. Likewise, my friends, Christ is present at communion. And just as we were thinking about the third point earlier of headship as representation, Christ is the head of the church. 
And this is why at the beginning of every Holy Communion, Jesus speaks through the communion celebrant with these words of invitation, Christ our Lord invites to His table all who love Him. We experience the presence of Christ when we gather for Holy Communion. The presence of Christ is experienced through His grace offered at this sacrament. In fact, John Wesley believed that Holy Communion is the principal channel through which God conveyed the grace of the Spirit to humankind. This is what he says in one of his sermons. The grace of God given herein confirms to us the pardon of our sins by enabling us to live them. As our bodies are strengthened by bread and wine, so are our souls by these tokens of the body and blood of Christ. This is the food of our souls. This gives strength to perform our duty and leads us on to perfection. End quote. And so here's the grace of Jesus that we experience. The sharing of bread and wine represent the body and blood of Christ of our Savior. It conveys to us, number one, the forgiveness of our sins. Number two, our reconciliation. Number three, strength for holiness and faithfulness. And so, my friends, it is my sincere hope that this will become real for you. That Christ truly becomes real for everyone here, especially when we gather for communion next weekend. Or else, it will become an empty ritual for you. So how do we honour God by participating in Holy Communion in a worthy manner? The Jewish Passover is a special meal for the Jews. It is a meal where those present will recall and celebrate the mercy of God, sparing them from the plague of the death of the firstborn. And it also celebrates their liberation from slavery in Egypt. Likewise, Jesus had this in mind when He said, Do this in remembrance of me. He was calling us to personally go back to the night of the Last Supper as if we were reclining at the Passover table with Jesus where, where, he, where he broke bread and gave it to you. And so my friends, to eat in a worthy manner is to take the Holy Communion seriously and to remember that Jesus Christ is present at our worship and at the communion table. We need to realize that Christ is present in our worship here today. We can use Paul's call to, to self-examination, to search the state of our hearts as we prepare to worship God. Or are we more concerned about attire? Or worse still, has attending worship service become just an item that you, you check off for the weekend? We need to return, my friends. We need to return to the heart of worship. One of the ways we can prepare ourselves for worship is to arrive at least 15 to 20 minutes earlier. It will give you sufficient time to join us for pre-service prayer, to quieten our hearts, and to prepare to worship God. If time permits, you can also use the prayer of examen to guide your own self-examination. There was a season where I was greatly discouraged. I was grieving about the things in church. I was disappointed with how things are going on. And I wondered if my efforts had been ineffective and fruitless. Has it been a waste of everyone's time? I've, I wondered if I had failed you as your pastor. I really wondered that. You know, I spent sleepless nights uh, thinking about that. 
I was weighed down heavily by grief. But by God's grace, I was led to use the prayer of examen. As I did so, even though it was not within a day, but over several days, I began to notice God's presence, His loving presence, even when I felt alone in this matter or in worship. Interestingly, God's voice became clearer each day. Even, even this morning when I was reading, doing my Bible reading, I felt God was speaking to me through the psalm as I read. You know, this led me to, to worship Him afresh with the words of this song. You dance over me while I am unaware. You sing all around. But I, I never hear the sound. Lord, I'm amazed by you. How you love me. You paint the morning sky with miracles in mind. My hope will always stand for you hold me in your hand. Lord, I'm amazed by you. How you love me. My friends, God is here in our midst. He is not here to entertain us. This is not a place for self-worship, but for us to worship God. Will you respond to honour Him today? Amen.